Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you very much for joining me. My name is Aaron Huey. I am your host of this 275 plus episodes. That is 275 experts that I have gotten my hands on to talk to you about your teen's struggles and want to make sure we're always bringing you the best of the best. And I do that because so many of you listen, like, subscribe, and share what we're doing here at Beyond Risk and Back. So thank you, parents, teachers, clinicians, anyone who's listening. Thank you for taking care of yourself in such a way that you're now getting support, you're getting help, and you're listening to the advice of the experts. My guest today, Daryl, he is a family recovery coach, and he had me at family recovery. Because anytime we start talking about recovery, the moment we take out the one person who's using, I don't care which person that is, but the moment we take out the one person who's using and says, that person needs to recover, we are on the wrong track. And I know Daryl agrees with me because because Daryl Rogers works with the families of teenagers who are struggling with addiction. And folks, I think we have a unique experience with Daryl because unfortunately, he has survived every parent's nightmare. And we're going to talk to him about it. We're, we're going to find out from him what that was like and why he's doing what he's doing. So thank you once again, parents, teachers, clinicians, for being here on Beyond Risk and Back. Daryl Rogers, thank you for being with us and sharing your expertise with our families. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. I want to start off right at the beginning because as I read your bio and as you and I were talking, you know, off air and, and before we decided to do the show, when you wrote to me, I mean, you 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 tossed the hammer into my lap right away. This whole thing hit you from out of left field at the very beginning. Talk about this. Uh, growing up, I never experienced any uh, issues with addiction in my family. It just totally caught me off guard when our oldest son, Chase, began having some issues. And in the beginning, I didn't know what was going on with him. You know, he was my first teenager, my first child. And so when he hit the teenage years, when he was beginning to first show signs of trouble, which was in about the middle of the 10th grade, somewhere in the 10th grade, I chalked it up to maybe this is just what teenage boys go through. This this is part of the process, you know. I mean, I thought maybe there were some drugs or, or alcohol or something going on, but I just, I didn't know. I was grasping at straws to try to figure out how to solve the issues I was having with him. He was failing. You know, he had been diagnosed ADHD early on. He had never been a stellar student, but slightly above average student. But now all of a sudden he was failing Spanish. All of his other grades were dropping. He was beginning to become a little rebellious at home and was getting in a little trouble. Nothing real serious, but I was seeing all of these warning signs in uh, just talking to him was not making any difference. So I decided to take things in a different direction. Did you see the signs like his group of friends changed? He stopped playing sports or you said the signs that you were chalking up to normal teen boy behavior and stuff. And now I'm sure on the recovery coach side, like every one of those red flags, what, what were some of the other ones? Yeah, I mean, really, everything was continuing as normal with the sports. That didn't seem to be affected. He played football and ran track. In terms of the people he was hanging out with, he still had his set of friends that was not, you know, getting in any kind of trouble. And I think he was kind of keeping it quiet that he was beginning to hang out with a, a different crowd, kind of on the side a little bit.
I don't think he had gotten in that deep yet. It was really when he went to college this where the wheels came off. You know, we sent him to a, a military school the middle of his junior year. I don't know. I guess you'd say I was kind of a strict parent <laughs> compared to some. I have a military background, you know. I was not having any, any success dealing with his issues, and I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't really get him to communicate with me. And so I transferred him to this military school. Took him a little while, but his grades began to come up. He improved his grades. He graduated on time. He had a really good senior year of football there. You know, there was a college that was uh, that reached out to him and offered him some scholarship money to come play football there. And when he got out of the environment where mom and dad were no longer around to keep an eye on him, and there was that structured environment from military school was gone, he had all this freedom. And he was away from home. He was in another state. He had all this freedom that he wasn't used to having and immediately began to gravitate to a crowd that was uh, using drugs and alcohol and just went in headfirst on all of that. And, you know, his grades suffering right off the bat uh, in college. And I was kind of keeping an eye on him and I knew he was headed in a bad direction. And then it then it really hit. When he came home for Christmas that year, that's when I knew, you know, I told him then, I said, hey, Chase, you know, you're on academic probation. You know, college is not for everybody. You don't have to go back to college. I'll help you if you want to enroll at the local uh, technical school or if you want to join the military or if there's something else you have in mind that you'd like to do, I'll help you figure it out. You don't have to go back to college. No, no, Dad, I want to go back. Well, he really just wanted to go back to party, you know. He was having a good time there. So uh, he went back and early Early on in that second semester, he dropped out, came back home, immediately gravitated to a, a rougher, even rougher crowd here at home. And it uh, wasn't long before he would be gone for days at a time and we wouldn't know where he was. He wouldn't communicate with us. We would try to call, try to text. And my wife said, look, you know, we have we have one rule here. You know, you're not working right now. You're not going to college. You're not doing anything with your life. If you're going to live in our house, you at least have to communicate with us a little bit to give us an idea of at least an idea of when we can expect you back. If you're going to stay overnight, that you're going to be overnight and some idea of where you are, generally speaking. And he wouldn't even do that. And um, it got to where he was just gone more and more. And I ended up locking him out one day and he came home and, and I wouldn't let him in. And it just broke my heart to watch him get in the car with his friends uh, and uh, and ride away, not knowing if I would ever see him again or not. Uh, by this point, I was beginning to really, I wouldn't say panic, but I had a lot of fear. I was dealing with a lot of fear at that point. So I was keeping up with him on social media. He was losing weight rapidly. He was uh, very pale and glassy-eyed. And I would see the pictures that he would post on social media. I would see pictures of him like he was holed up in a hotel room with a bunch of friends like they're all strung out you know i became alarmed so i had a an intervention for him here at our house through that intervention we were able to get him into treatment in south florida and he spent 30 days in a treatment facility there and then went into a halfway house bounced around to several different halfway houses in south florida and got himself kicked out of one <laughs> he was in a really good one there at the end but he uh, there was a girl that he met there that he really liked and uh, he actually had met her in treatment but she ended up at that same halfway house and uh, so when she left to go back home he, it was time for him to leave too and so he made the people mad at him, people that were running the house, and they kicked him out. So I drove down to Florida, picked him up. He moved back in with us. Little did I know what a bad idea that was, letting him move back in with us at that point. But he moved back in, and actually when he got back home, he was doing a lot better. 
He was staying away from the people who had been a bad influence before. We felt like we had the old Chase back. He got a job uh, just working retail. He was going to IOP, intensive outpatient care, uh, two nights a week. And he wanted to go. He wanted to get better. And I would go to some family sessions with him to try to work on our relationship, to work on our communication and everything. Over a period of time, I could tell that he was beginning to relapse. Now, I didn't know anything. I still didn't know anything about addiction. I still had not done my homework at this point. And thinking that he was the problem, that I didn't have a problem. He was being a bad person. He's using drugs. You know, that was kind of my my viewpoint. Like I said, he was doing better, but I could, I could see, I just, I could sense that he was beginning to relapse. And he came to me one day and he said, dad, you know, I'm hanging around a bad crowd again. I'm headed in a bad direction and I really don't know what to do about it. I know I need to get away from these people that I'm hanging out with, but I don't know how to do that except to move. And he told me he had taken a a job transfer down to Florida, back to the area where he'd been in treatment. He had already made arrangements with an older guy that he had met in treatment there that had his own place. Seemed like a good guy. I'd met him one time before. He already set the rules. You know, you can't use any drugs in my apartment. You know, if I catch you doing that, you're out. My wife made him promise that he would come by and have a meal with us before leaving for Florida. Well, the day came that he was supposed to come by and eat with us and he didn't show up. And it was getting later in the afternoon. We tried to call. We tried to text. We're getting no response. And uh, we all moved to the living room was my wife and I and our younger son, Justin, who was in the eighth grade at the time. We all moved to the living room. We're just kind of hanging out. And about that time, I had a phone call with from a friend of mine. I didn't want to disturb Kim and Justin kind of watching TV a little bit. I didn't want to disturb them with my phone conversation. So I went outside. It was a nice day out, May 29th, 2014. I'm out in the front lawn and I'm on the phone with my friend in a city of Raleigh police cruiser pulled up to the curb in front of our house. And the officer got out of his car and started up my driveway. And I told my friend, I got to go. Apparently Chase is in some kind of trouble. And I went to meet the officer. I met him there in our driveway. And that's where he told me, Mr. Rogers has been a bad wreck out on I-40. And your son, Chase, died at the scene. And, um, man, that was rough. That was rough hearing that. Um, so I, uh, he, um, it took me a second. You know, there, there, was, a, there was a long pause because uh, there was a little bit of confusion when he first got there. He thought I was one of the other, he thought he was at one of the other families' addresses. There were several people in the car. And so now my brain's really kind of playing tricks on me. And I'm thinking, did he, he didn't say he was dead, did he? And I finally asked him, you know, because I'm thinking he's got me confused with one of the other ones or something, you know, or he's in the hospital. But, but I finally asked him and he said, yes, sir, he's dead. He asked me, do you want me to go in? Do you, is there anybody inside that you'd like me to notify? I said, well, I, well my wife and my other son are in there. I feel like that's my job. Let me do that. Let me tell him. And he asked me if I would like for him to go in with me for support. And he did. I, I agreed to that. And he went in with me and, and I broke the news to them. And, you know, we began to ask questions. Once we got over, you know, we cried a lot for a while. And then once we got over that, we began to ask questions. And, you know, there was still a lot of information to come. They still didn't know a lot. It was still early on in the investigation. We did learn through the grapevine. Uh, this was hearsay, but we did we did learn that there was a going away party, apparently, the night before. And there were all kind of drugs and alcohol at this going away party. And they all consumed it. And they chased some of his friends, woke up late the next morning feeling hungover. So they said, hey, let's go to the park. And they went to the park and smoked some weed to um, help them cope with their nausea. That was their their thought process. And um, and they did smoke there in the park. And then 
Chase allowed this uh, young woman that he had dated at one time, uh, 18 years old, really pretty girl, let her get behind the wheel of his car. Uh, they weren't dating at that point. So they, they had a bad breakup, so we were kind of surprised they were together. But he let her get behind the wheel. He got in the front passenger seat. Another kid got in the back, and they left that park. And they only made it a few miles. They, they, well, they made a quick stop, grabbed a bite to eat right out on the I-40 in rush hour traffic, only a couple of miles. And then she lost control of his car in a curb. Uh, slid off the road, hit a tree. Chase, right where he was sitting, um, the car, the tree just happened to come right across where he was sitting, took most of the impact. It it totally flipped up on the side and wrapped around the tree. And it took uh, firefighters, emergency personnel, almost an hour to get the three of them out of the vehicle. And uh, they transported the two survivors. Chase was, was dead at the scene. And uh, they transported the two survivors right away to the hospital with uh, serious injuries. And they would recover over the next several weeks to the extent they could return home and continue their recovery at home. But then um, the girl that was the driver died uh, seven months after the wreck, um, after a fire broke out in her apartment. And the fire chief said that based on their investigation, he believes that she poured gasoline all over the floor of her apartment, stood in the middle of it and ignited it. And there were uh, two suicide notes that were found, uh, one online and one handwritten. So uh, that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Um, I've told it thousands of times. I I've lost track um, because I do prevention speaking. But, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't get any easier to tell. But I tell it because I feel like people need, there's so many life lessons in the story. It needs to be told. You know, I, I've heard that this is not something you get over. It's something you live with. Yeah, that's true. That's very, very true. Um, you never get over... And, you know, I, I hate to compare grief, but, you know, I've met people who have very intense grief who've lost a father or, a, or um, you know, a sibling or a, a mother or whatever, um, even a friend. But um, for me, the most intense grief that I've ever felt was losing my son. And um, it's, uh, it's not one of those things you ever get over. You just learn how to, you can learn. Some people get stuck in their grief, but you can learn how to lean into the pain and, and actually grow, you know, spiritually and, and emotionally and learn how to be a, become more resilient and deal with things better just over all the way around. There's so many questions that come up about an experience like that, and especially now on this side where you're a recovery coach and you can step in into this darkness, into the shadow with families who are terrified of something like this for good reason. And and with you having been through it, they see that you can live with it. You can survive it. I have to ask, what were the lessons that showed up? And, and in what order, you know, what was the first thing that you learned about yourself, about your son, about addiction, about your family, about God? What was the first thing you realized from all of this? In the very early stages, I was just sort of numb. Uh, and I would say that, you know, I told people, you know, I hope that I can work something out with the driver and, and you know, we can have an understanding, have some forgiveness, you know, and, and that 
that both of us can go out together and speak and, and warn other people and, you know, especially speak to young people about what's happening here. But that didn't last long. <laughs> that didn't last long. You know, people go through different stages of grief and not everybody, everybody's grief journey is different. Not everyone gets angry. I went through a period of anger after that. I was very angry. Most of my anger you know, was directed at the driver and the other people who I felt like were a bad influence on Chase. Still not understanding addiction, you know, and in hindsight, now I can look at it and I can go, well, number one, it was Chase's car. And number two, he was the oldest person there. So he had the lion's share of the responsibility in that situation. Not that the others didn't share some responsibility as well. But when you're in grief and you're going through that, you can't really see straight sometimes. You know, you can't really be, um, you know, your logic is off a little bit. At BrabApp.com, parents, I have posted a parenting masterclass. Before you fast forward through this commercial, give me a chance because I'm going to keep it short. I'm going to keep it blunt. The content is everything I have ever taught a parent in the past 20 years of working with parents in crisis. There are three components to the course, 56 classes in three components, the red, the beyond risk, the crisis children, yellow, the at-risk children, and green. When things are going well, how do we get them to go great or keep them going well? It's everything. I've ever taught a parent in 20 years of working with families. But here's the deal. It's $99. I want every parent to be able to have access to this course. So please go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B for Beyond Risk and Back. Brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com. Check it out for yourself. Thank you for, for sharing at that level of transparency. I think that's another experience that begins to happen when you survive addiction, whether it's in yourself or in your family, you recognize that there's very little served by holding back into the story. And parents who are listening to the show who are terrified of it happening, seeing the path forward that can, that can end here or that could have ended there, it justifies their fear. It, it, it validates the reason why they want to make a change and are trying to find support. At what point did you change this pain into your path where you suddenly said, I got to help others avoid this. I mean, you, you talked about early on, which means within that first seven months, early on, you were like, I got to do something. I got to say something. I got to talk to people. But we're coming up on 10 years later and you're still doing it. When, when did it change to become the mission, the vision, the passion, the purpose? Actually, pretty early on, um, you know, I wrote a book to begin with and, and the writing the book was my way of grieving. And, um, and, or it was part of the grieving process early on. And, and uh, I got that book out there. And honestly, I mean, I, I was I was still angry. So I let a lot of people have it in that book. I blasted a lot of people, you know, for whatever reason, it's resonated with people. I read it now. And, you know, if I go back and I look at it, I'll kind of cringe because I go, man, I didn't understand addiction at all. And, and you know, why was I so, I, my anger wasn't really directed in or at the right people. I mean, you know, maybe some of it, but I can tell you this, a couple of things that come to me. Uh, one is that I have grieved on both sides of this. So I, I, there is a grief that goes along with having a child in active addiction. 
And I don't know, you can call it anticipatory grief, you know, where you're, you're always anticipating that something bad is going to happen to your child. Or you could say it's the grief of you've already lost your child to a degree. You lost the child that you knew. They're not the same while they're in addiction. And you, you don't know if you'll ever get them back or not. So you're already grieving then. And, I've, and then I've experienced the grief of the loss of a child. And they're both very intense. But I, I want to say that uh, grieving over a child in active addiction is more intense in a lot of respects. Because, you know, I, I have closure on this side. There's nothing I can do now if I wanted to. But I think it's all about learning how to let go of the things that you can't control and learning how to focus on the things that you can control. And it's really, there's really only one person in this equation that you can control, and that's yourself. And uh, I was the world's worst helicopter parent, you know. Uh, I have a, I have an aviation background and actually flew helicopters. So <laughs> but, but I really was a bad helicopter parent. I mean, uh, you know, I felt like I could just control everything. And uh, I don't think I was quite that bad until he was addicted. You know, maybe there were some controlling tendencies already, but definitely once he, I knew he had an addiction and I got the, the fear set in, man, I was really, really controlling at that point. You, you've heard of the uh, the the new, you know, we, we've got the drill sergeants, we've got the helicopters. Have you heard of the fighter pilot parents? Have you heard of that no, one? No, I haven't heard of that. No. Yeah, they're the parents who you don't hear from them until something goes wrong and they come and do a bombing run on <laughs> on your school, on your whatever. But right. they show up out of nowhere going Mach mm. 10 and just, mm. why, how come I've never, you don't have me? And try to, try to <laughs> annihilate the whole situation for their children. Uh -huh. how, if you now met yourself then, mm. when Chase first started out, started mm. showing the signs, how would you coach yourself? What would, what would you, what would you say to yourself as a client? I would, try to be more open. I would try to, to have a, a an, create an environment where he felt more comfortable coming to me with problems because he would always go to mom because dad was the disciplinarian. And, and I think there's a right way and a right time and a right place for discipline. You have to have discipline done right. He just saw me as, you know, I was just really strict. And, um, I don't know that that's necessarily bad other than I needed to I needed to figure out a way to communicate with him better in a way that made him feel like, hey, I can talk to dad when I have issues, even if it's something that I think he might not agree with or might not like, because he would go to my wife and then my wife would come to me and she'd say, hey, Chase told me this, but he's scared to talk to you about it. You know, so that's one thing that I would would try to do a better job at. That's that classic triangle of, you know, the perpetrator, the victim, and the enabler. Mm -hmm. That's the, that is, mm -hmm. that is, families get stuck in that one very quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then For sure. his, his progression from the beginning, you know, and the, and the red flags, you and I talked off the air about cannabis. And it sounds like, and I'm, I could be totally wrong, obviously alcohol was involved but it also sounds like for, for Chase, there were other drugs involved as well as he got into college and stuff. Yeah, and I'm not sure of the full extent of 
you know, what all drugs to use because he was not very, he, he hid it. He did his best to hide what he could. I know he experimented with Molly while he was in um, college and maybe some after college. Um, you know, a lot of people don't take Molly really seriously. It's kind of a party drug, you know, thought of as a party drug, you know, as, um, uh, but I, I have a friend whose daughter died uh, when she took Molly at a at a, a music festival uh, one time, you know, and uh, you don't know. You never know what's in some of this stuff. We had a girl we had a girl check into our facility and that was her thing. It's like I've never done anything worse than Molly. And we drug tested her and she came up, you know, as we drug tested every child and she came up positive for heroin. She was horrified. I've never done heroin. And we're like, what do you think they put in Molly? They put it, they put in heroin, they put in meth, they put in cocaine, they put in like, that's what's, that's what Molly's cut with. And so your kid's never on Molly. Your kid's on a whole bunch of crap. So I, I don't know what other drugs, you know, other, you know, I, I can't say for sure, but, uh, but I know he was experimenting and I know the people he was hanging out with. So nothing would surprise me. Um, it did seem to be mostly the marijuana. And when I talked to some of his uh, acquaintances, uh, people he was hanging out with, um, uh, one kid was his dealer, you know, uh, or one of his dealers, at least that, that I knew of, that I got to know pretty well after all of this, uh, trying to figure it all out, you know, just talking to him. Uh, he told me, he said, Chase just wanted you and your wife to know that it was just the marijuana. He just liked the marijuana, you know, and he's like, every time we got together, he just wanted to know where's the weed. And uh, anyway, that that was his biggest issue, I think. Um, but he was definitely experimenting with other things. So I'm sure it would have gone to other things eventually. You had an experience with your son and military school, and that certainly is the bastard child of treatment and recovery and residential programming now. And I'm curious about, you know, obviously it made sense because you're ex-military and, you know, the, 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 the discipline and the understanding and the band of brothers and et cetera. Would you, would you have done that again? Would you, would you do that again? Do you recommend military school for families who are struggling? I absolutely would not do it again. <laughs> How come? How come? I'm not going to say there aren't military schools out there that are good. There, I'm sure there are plenty of good military schools out there and that might be the right fit for the right kid at the right time. You know, for him at that particular time, uh, this was not, it wasn't the worst move in the world. He, he did, he did uh, graduate. He got, brought his grades up. He still had some behavior issues and he began experimenting. Uh, he told his mother that he didn't use anything until he got to military school, any kind of drugs or alcohol. Now, I don't know if I believe that or not, but it definitely escalated some there. And um, he tended to gravitate to there were there were kids there who were serious about getting into a service academy and who were really working hard and who were dedicated. You know, he was ADA. He was diagnosed ADHD early on. And I felt like that structured environment and the discipline would be good for him. But he gravitated to the kids who were having issues and uh, what I found out was that there were parents who were enabling their kids to break the rules, uh, among other things, you know, that were going on there. But the, what they would do is, is, um, they had to turn in their cell phone when they would, when they would take a weekend break to go home, 
they come back, they had to turn in their cell phone. Well, some of these kids have more than one cell phone. They had one to turn in and one that mom and dad, an extra one mom and dad gave them. You know, they had an issued laptop that was to help keep them off the internet. Well, I talked to one lady in the lobby that the kid brought his own laptop from home. And she's telling me this in the lobby. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and he was, he had figured out how to, they had a firewall and he had figured out how to uh, circumvent the firewall and tap into the, uh, into the nurse's uh, station, into her. Um, he was a really smart kid, you know, and there were a lot of really smart kids there, but he figured out how to bypass that whole thing. And they were supposed to be, after 10 o'clock at night, they were supposed to be off of the internet and they weren't. And I had to have a discussion with the leadership there because uh, I tried to tell them and and I, they said, oh, no, they don't have access after 10 o'clock. And I said, I'm messaging him at 12 midnight. He's messaging me. We're talking, you know, <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it uh, overall, it wasn't the best experience for us. But I mean, he needed some kind of a change at that point. He needed a shakeup. I just didn't know for a fact that he was using drugs. So, you know, sending him to a treatment facility, I didn't see as an option at that point. You talk a lot about enabling on your website, uh, therecoverycoach.com, and that I'm I'm curious about your take on enabling. And I'm also very curious on what you think the number one way parents enable their kids is. Yeah, I've sort of changed my language a little bit around it, and I haven't changed it on my website yet, but I talk now, when I, it, it's a more, it has a more positive connotation. I talk about setting healthy boundaries versus enabling. Enabling people get this negative mindset around that. You know, anytime you do something for your child that they're capable of and should be doing for themselves, particularly adult children uh, or older teenage children, you're enabling them. You're not allowing them to learn from their mistakes. You're not allowing them to to have to deal with the consequences. You're 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 preventing them from having to deal deal with the consequences of their uh, mistakes. So that short circuits the learning process and keeps them stuck emotionally at the age that they're at. Now they they're not able to mature. Um, and one one example, I, and, and and this is a little bit taking it a little bit further, but I, I had this um, on social media recently. Um, lady, well, actually, she called me to begin with. She called me and said, "I'm having trouble with my my son is in jail, and he keeps calling me, begging me, Mom, will you?" And this is a, a kid that was in his early twenties. Mom, will you? just bail me out of jail. I promise I'll go to treatment. If you'll just set up treatment for me, just bail me out of jail. And I, I told her, I said, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. And, uh, and she said, well, he just keeps calling me. I said, turn your phone off. I said, if you need support, call me, whatever you have to do, but don't bail him out of jail. And about a week later, she called me and she said, I just thought I'd give you an update. She said, I bailed him out of jail. And she said, as soon as I got the first red light, he jumped out and he took off. He's using fentanyl. He's out on the street somewhere. I don't have any idea where he is. He's he's hundreds of miles away from home. And and now I'm even more worried. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's just one example of, of enabling. You know, he needed to stay there for a little while. And there, there might be some circumstances where it might be good to bail them out of jail, but you need, you need some counseling on that. That's not something that I just, it would probably be very rare situations where that would be a good idea. 
On your website, the Family Recovery Coach, you've got parent courses, you've got packages, you've got a really nice family recovery roadmap. Where else can people find you? How do they how do they get in touch with you? I saw a, a YouTube page. Is that just under your name? Yeah, it's actually the Family Recovery Coach um, on YouTube or Daryl Rogers. I mean, you can search it either way and find it. And it's D-A-R-R-Y-L-R-O-D-G-E-R-S. Um, I'm also on TikTok. You know, I was I was a little. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am too. Are you? <laughs> yeah. I was a little skeptical in the beginning, you know, but uh, but after a while, I dove in because I was getting so much more uh, traction on TikTok than I was anywhere else. And so uh, I've got a lot of videos up on TikTok, and they're and they're fairly short, and they're to the point. And um, got a pretty good following going there. So uh, there or I have a Facebook page um, uh, that's also under my name, Daryl Rogers. And uh, all the content that I share, most of the content that I share on TikTok is is automatically reposted over to uh, repurposed over to my Facebook page. So uh, they can find most of the same content if they're not TikTok users on Facebook. What's your big one huge parents have to know this before we end our episode today. What's of everything you've been through hell and back. What's the one thing you, you can't sleep if you don't tell a parent that there's only, I think I mentioned this earlier, but there's only one person in this equation that you can control and that's yourself. So you give your child their best opportunity at recovery when you focus on your own spiritual and personal growth. Um, so I know it's hard to let go, but you have to learn how to let go of, of trying to control your child and, and control yourself and work on that inner strength. My guest today was Daryl Rogers. I want to make sure that you go to his website and sign up for his new newsletter, thefamilyrecoverycoach.com. He's got a summit coming up soon about addiction and adolescence. So make sure you get on his newsletter and get information about his summit coming up and, and, and follow him. Follow what this guy's doing. What a terrifying experience. And for 20 years now, working with families who have tried to find the doorway before the gates of hell, because that's that's where this addiction thing goes now. It goes, it's, it's, a, it's straight to hell. And listening to him talk about surviving it, working through it, what he knows now, what he teaches now, make sure you follow up with Daryl. And as always, you can follow up with me at brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com. That's the Parenting Masterclass. Parenting Teens That Struggle on Facebook. That's my private group. And if your child specifically is dealing with video game struggles, Parenting Teens That Struggle with Video Game, uh, that is my book. It's available on Amazon. Folks, thank you for joining me on another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Remember, parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because that's how we do our best work with our kids. I'll see you next week.